Welcome to Women Read Scripture. My name is Mariana Richardson. And I'm Christine Thackeray. And I'm Roxanne Weathers. Roxanne, we're so excited to have you here with us. And would you like to say a couple of things about who you are and what you've done? Well, I'm excited to be here with both of you. And I um, started as an early morning seminary teacher. My first early morning seminary teacher was a young woman that I knew growing up. And when she decided to serve a mission, she asked to teach us seminary. And I think it was the first time that I realized that as a woman, I could study the gospel and learn. And so then I thought that was just what you did to prepare for your mission. So I volunteered. Also, I taught early morning seminary for four years. Then I was blessed to teach full-time seminary for five years and loved those experiences. So I had planned on having 12 children, but didn't get married until much later in life. I know you have 12 children, so that's do. such a I wonderful do. <laughs> blessing. It is a blessing. And so when I was pregnant with our daughter, I said, I'm just going to go home and be a mom, the thing I've wanted for my whole life. Which is the best thing. It is a wonderful thing. And there was this longing to continue to teach, so I've taught adult religion classes First through BYU Continuing Ed, and then just through the stakes and wards where I've lived. I love it. And it's been a wonderful blessing to focus on the women in the scriptures and to learn from their examples, but also to focus on the words of the prophets. I love to study the conference talks by topic in my classes and nice. and just go deeper with those topics. So just well, a wonderful experience with teaching and learning the Word of God. You are exactly where you should be in terms of what we're talking, <laughs> what we do here, in terms of as women reading Scripture and talking about our thoughts and feelings about the Scriptures. And it sounds like you've done that for all of your life. Mm -hmm. So we we are so grateful for you to be here mm -hmm. today. We're going to be talking about John seven through ten, and we're going to be talking about some pretty important parts of the Savior's life, but also some of the teachings that he's given and experiences that he had that we can learn from. And I was really impressed with when we talk about John 7, we have at the very beginning, it says, now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. So this is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's five days after the Day of Atonement, and it's the time, it's also called Sukkot, but it's the time when they live in, well, they, they make booths and they do it with, well, they, you can make it at all different kinds of things. You know, you can have it with branches, with some, some people have drapes of cloth and clothing. And um, basically, they live in that for a week. Now, I am not a fan of camping. I'm really not. The only positive thing I can think of is in, in Israel, the weather's pretty good, you know, I'm sure, during this period of time. But I do want to say that with King Benjamin's address, when they sat in tents yep. and faced them toward King Benjamin, Feast of that it was the Feast of Tabernacles. Yeah, but absolutely. they also are kind of like tents. Right. And so they're very similar. And they also very often associated significant things like the coronation of a new king. Exactly. Or an important teaching that needed to be given with this Feast of Tabernacles, which for them was the most joyous, the it, time of most rejoicing. 
And it was because they're rejoicing for the harvest. Mm -hmm. They're rejoicing for the protection that the Lord gave them during their 40 years wandering in the wilderness. It truly was this whole idea of protection and also bounty from the Lord. Mm -hmm. At the very last day, and this was something that was added later. And so understand that when you read about the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament, it doesn't have this part of the, the feast. But on the very last day, what the high priest would do is he would go down to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher, and he would go and get some water in the pitcher, and then he would take that pitcher of water, and he would pour it over the altar. And it is at this point that the Lord says something very significant. So if we look at John 7, verses 37 and 38, It says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, meaning the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, John also adds a little parenthesis after it, and he talks about how the Savior is really talking about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is going to come to all people, just like the flowing of living waters. And so we do have that. But after he says these things, there's a lot of division in the people. The people are going, what is he talking about? And a matter of fact, if you look in 40, he says, many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet. So some people are being positive, where others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. So as we talk, we're going to be talking a lot about the Savior and different testimonies of the Savior. And as we talk about this, I wanted to ask you, how has the Savior brought you and your testimony of the Savior brought you individual peace, but also how can this testimony of the Savior bring division among people as well? I'm thinking of, uh, in my own life, I'm so grateful for the peace of the gospel, and it has been a blessing to me that every time when there's a trial or a difficulty or a challenge, that my first thought is to turn to God. And um, there are members of my extended family and dear, dear friends who have turned from him. And it's very difficult to have discussions with them because they know of my great faith in Jesus and that I do depend upon Jesus and that I do believe in the Heavenly Father, and it often creates um, awkward situations. And I, I, I feel like I try very hard to share with them that I accept where they are and in their journey, and that they are going to find their truths and their path, and I really do believe that. I see them finding spiritual truths in their own way that they can feel comfortable with, and encourage them, but it does it does cause some division, division. Yeah, even with very dear friends and dear family members, and uh, I just choose to keep those communication lines open 
to apologize if there if I have offended in any way and then to say what I see that is positive and good in their own lives. That's so good. And I was thinking how some people said that Christ, you know, was the Messiah and right. other people said that he had a devil, that he was of the devil. Both sides. And I right. think the same thing is true of what you said but of the church, mm -hmm. that some people say it's a cult and that it's a terrible thing. And other people, well, I feel like I found such joy and beauty and love and such connection to the Lord and truly feasting on the living word and the living water. And so it's just, it is interesting because people seem to have that division is more, I think, alive now than ever, don't you? Oh, yeah. I agree. That divisiveness. Crazy. You know, and I do think as we talk about truth, and that's another theme that we're going to be talking about today, as we talk about what truth means to people, it's interesting to me how some people view truth as something that can change, you know, something that, that is relative. I don't believe in relative truth. I believe that there is a definitive truth, that there is one truth. And so as we deal with that, that's going to be something that basically the Pharisees are going to have a difficult time with in terms of the definition of truth and also being able to discern the truth. What is the truth? And I know, Christine, you're going to be talking about living the truth and what that means. Well, I love that because um, it is interesting to see how Christ at first knew that this um, Feast of Tabernacles was coming, and he told the disciples to go on ahead, that I'm going to come secretly, because he knew he was already being looked out for and was, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him already. Right. So he knew he had to sneak in, because one of the big shocks to me was that Christ spent most of his time up north in the Galilee area, mm -hmm. and it was just for these feasts and festivals that he dipped down to Jerusalem and then was right back up. And all 11 of his apostles were from Galilee, and only one was from Jerusalem. And you know which one it was? Judas. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. Yeah. <laughs> but realize, too, Bethany also became a, a special place for him, too, oh, yes. which we're going to yes, be talking which is about. just a suburb. Which is a suburb of, of, Jerusalem. of Jerusalem. Right. But at the very... So as he came and taught... Um, he came kind of in secret and came to the temple and taught during the Feast of Tabernacles. And as he taught, the people were marveled that he wasn't a man of letters mm -hmm. because he taught. And they were expecting, like with the scribes and the Pharisees, they spent years studying every corner of the word. And that's not the way he taught. But he taught that we should learn a different way. And the way he taught was, and it's so cute, because when I taught early morning seminary, we sang this one to angels we have heard on high. Oh, Is like that it. so silly? Because we memorized all the um, scriptures, and it was, if any man will do his will, he will know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. I so love anyway, it. Oh. <laughs> I love it. All right. That was They're never going to oh, forget that. that They're one. never going to forget that. But, um, but that idea that we learn by doing was what Christ taught. He said, the way you'll know if what I'm saying is true isn't by reading every word. That's only half. The other piece is by doing his will. And I was so fascinated by this because there was this great quote by Benjamin Franklin. That's one I really love, and you probably have heard it. If you tell me, I'll forget. If you teach me, I'll remember. 
but if you involve me, I'll learn. And so it is through the doing that we truly learn. And then we don't only learn, we become and really understand the doctrine of Christ. So when he taught this idea, I could think of so many places in the scriptures where that was taught in addition to this place. So I just am going to ask you, can you think of one? Because I have like five. <laughs> can you think All of right, one? Now you're making that... us feel really stupid. Oh, sorry. <laughs> where he invited them five. not only to learn by doing. by doing. So to learn by doing, can you think of another scripture? Because the first one I thought of was Alma 32, that if you'll only experiment upon my words, words. right, sure. and, and ex exercise just a particle of faith. So by actually doing it and moving forward was the way it becomes. And I loved the three things it talks about. Because the first I one have it one. says- I found one. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, but I love that it said um, it will, uh, the desire will work in, within you, so you'll want to do it more. Secondly, it will enlarge your soul, so it'll make you bigger. And then the last one, it was enlighten your understanding, and it will become delicious to you. And that's how we love the word is by actually doing, which is so different than just hearing. So tell me the other one you have. Oh, Nephi. Okay, here we go one. Oh. Uh -huh. And that seed, so it can be an acronym right. for what happens. It swells, it enlightens, it enlarges, and then it's, it's delicious. It's delicious. Seed. Oh, I love it. And so that. if you oh, have those... Oh, you're making me happy. <laughs> <laughs> if you have those kinds of experiences oh. with doing... That is the indication that it is a that good is so seed. Beautiful. I love that. I do love Sorry. that too. Okay. And no, I was thinking enlightens delicious. I love that. Nephi, when he says, I will go. I will do, do the, the things the Lord's Lord command. As a matter of fact, we can't help but sing that. I, <laughs> I will go. I will do. I love it. I love it. Um, and I then love. I thought that be doers of the word and not hearers only. And, um, and the other one I thought was the parable of the sower. And the reason why I thought about that is as you were looking at the three types of land, one goes by the wayside. You're just not even going to touch it, right? The other one is in stony places, which is dirt mixed with rock. So the rock you're not going to do. The dirt you might here or there. And then the good, you're actually willing to do it. And that's the key, I think, is that when we're not, the reason why we don't is because we don't want to. And so I think part of that doing is adjusting our will to the Lord's. And that's why we don't move forward. And so I found this great quote by Neil A. Maxwell, who's my favorite. And it, it hit my head again because I've read it. And it was only by aligning our will with the Lord's is full happiness found. And that's how we really understand the gospel. But that's how we have it delicious. That's how is is truly by doing that will. And, and I, I thought of one too. Is it too late to share? Yes, go ahead. Um, I thought of Esther since you said Nephi. Oh, I mm -hmm. thought of Esther. Like mm -hmm. it, it was absolutely in her willingness to first fast and then to walk before the king that she was able to be strengthened. And I even love that she didn't have a plan, right? So she invited, okay, well, maybe if they come to dinner, something oh, will come to that me. That is so good. And nothing comes. And so she says, well, just come back to dinner a second time. And our timing is not the same as the Lord's, but as we do the things that he asks us to do, he can prepare the way because other things had to fall into place, right? Before she could then go to the king with the information right. that he needed. So sometimes it's really nice, like Nephi, that it falls 
just right sequentially in place and you're sure. able to do each thing. But sometimes, like Esther, we have to we do... Have to step into the dark. And then do, do again. And then do again before so the revelation comes. Wow. So I do, but I love that scripture that we need to learn by doing, which is the gospel. Well, and I love the point that you made that, you know, he wasn't using convoluted language. He wasn't using big words. He wasn't right. making it so difficult to understand. Instead, the Savior gives us the example of simplifying and getting down to the real truth rather than making things so complicated, which is what the Pharisees were doing. You know, it was just well, so and they joy in the complication, and they did. I do they have to say, there's it. times though where there'll be a lesson going on. I'll be like, oh, but this is so interesting. You have to like, like um, <laughs> anyway. Later, we're going to talk about the bomb of Gilead, which has nothing to do with my point. But I was like, I love the bomb, the bomb of, of Gilead. Gilead. <laughs> it has to do with nothing. So, so I, I do have that Pharisee in me, like, and I try and quiet him every once in a while. But it's there. <laughs> it's there. <laughs> No, I understand that. It is fun to kind of sometimes go down those paths, but I love the example of the Savior that brings us back mm -hmm. and says, you know, let's not get into those jots and tittles, right. you know, and that's, it's right. so easy to do. It is easy. And so instead we stay true to the way that he always talks about. Well, Roxanne, I know that you're going to talk about the Savior's mercy as a symbol of truth, kind of truth is our... our um, Focus today, and would you like to talk to us about the woman taken in adultery? adultery? This is one of the my favorite examples of God's mercy, of Jesus Christ's enabling power, of His grace, of the beauty of the moment we turn to Jesus, and the power that comes into our lives as we turn to Him. I love that one of the words that is used most often in the Old Testament for repentance is the word shub, which means to turn fully to. And so it's not just a turning away from the sin, but it's a turning to the Savior. And this is such a powerful example of that moment, that in that very moment, Jesus can save us. And um, not that we are done with the process of becoming, not that we can walk into the celestial kingdom in that moment, but he does save us in the very moment that we turn to him. And that's the beauty of the story of the woman who is taken in adultery to me. And I love that it starts with two simple verses where Jesus first goes to the Mount of Olives. And I know that you've both been to yes. Israel. It's beautiful. And it's just such a beautiful place. And such a sacred feeling there as you walk amongst those olive trees. And uh, what a place of peace and repose it must have been for the Savior, knowing that he was going to be accosted every day, that there was going to be a battle to fight every day, and to be able to go there. And then he goes to the temple. And, he, and it says that all the people came to him. And I just think about the spirit that we have as we go to the temple, all the people that are gathered there and how different they are. I, I love to look around in a, a session at the temple and, and see all the difference as of people around me. And we were just in Hawaii and we were, the, my daughter and son-in-law and husband and I, we were the only 
mainlanders and that the whole rest was a family that was there for a young woman that was receiving her endowments, a Polynesian family. And I just loved that moment of of being together in the temple, all dressed in white, and the feeling that was there. And I just, I love to think about that feeling that Jesus and those he was teaching must have been having in that moment. And then the contrast when the Pharisees and the scribes came with this woman, and their only intent was to tempt him and accuse him. Mm-hmm. And, and and what that must have felt, like just the emotion that must have come to him, that must have come to the people that were there, and how stark the contrast would have been. And of course, we know that they accused her of being caught in the very act and that the law demanded that she be stoned. And if she was caught in the act, then the guy should have been there I know, too. exactly. <laughs> right. No, that's right. exactly that is right. One of the, it takes two. It takes right? two. <laughs> and, and in the law, it does state that the both are two. But of course stoned. they did it. Right. And for me, there is great power that Jesus doesn't try to accuse them. Like he is very patient. Oh, he he doesn't turn around and say, so where is the man? Right. And why are we not doing this according to the law, if that's what you're going to to bring here in this moment? Um, and uh, uh, I also think about that woman and, you know, oh. being caught in the very act. She cannot have been dressed appropriately for the temple. No, Mm-mm. no. And, and all of these people see her and what she must have felt and and how she must have been in anguish um and uh jesus has no answer for them he simply stoops down and i love the intentional feeling of this moment that he is not going to engage in the anger in the fury um he's going to stoop down and uh, he's taking his time, and he began to write on the ground. And Christine and I already talked about. There's many who speculate about what he what wrote, he was wrote right, writing he on was the ground. And, what and, he doing? And I have, idea I have never heard before. Well, you should. Okay, I want to hear. Well, you well share. mine is horrible because I thought he was writing like the sins of the other people. So when they look down, they go, "Ooh, oh yeah, I didn't know." <laughs> but um, that's what. I, but in my mind, it was like maybe I'll have to see. But yours. So so in the scriptures, it says that the woman is standing. In many of the pictures, she's. On the ground, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um, I love to imagine her being on the ground and that the Savior has now come to where she is. And that she he begins to write words of love, of oh, hope. I love that so, so much redemption. more. I know. So much more. If this is a story of mercy, which I think that it really it is, is mm-hmm. that he would have been sending in the best way he knew how a message to this daughter of God, whom he already loves, mm-hmm. and for whom he knows he will pay the price, and that he would write those words of love, of acceptance, of hope, and also of redemption, of the promise that she can be saved in this moment. And of course, then the scribes and the Pharisees will not leave him alone. They keep 
trying to get him to answer to them. And so he stands back up and I, I love again that he's not going to enter into this argument. He gives them their agency. Oh, that's true. He causes them to self-reflect. In the question that he asks them, he says, okay, that's fine. Let's live this law. And any of you who are without sin can cast the stone. And we know that Jesus is the only one who could in that moment mm -hmm. cast a stone. But he allows them to go through the process of, oh, of self-discovery, of maybe even having a change of heart themselves. And um, we don't see them have this change of heart, but then he kneels down know. again. Yeah. We don't know. Right. Well, and I do have to say, the first sin they've done is obvious right. because someone that's unclean shouldn't have been brought into the temple. Oh, and so they all had a very external sin that everybody would have known. I like, which it. is the worst sin? Her committing adultery or you bring someone you know that is unclean in into the temple. temple. But you don't know where on the temple Right, but still, so. the temple should be respected, even the poor of the Gentiles. True. And so, I mean, when he says, which of you, <laughs> they may have been like, Maybe we overplayed our hand. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little. Just a little. Skosh. And then again, intentionally, he kneels down and begins to write again. And I wondered this time if he's not wording, writing the laws of the higher gospel that he's been trying to raise them to. Words like love thy neighbor as thyself or judge not or forgive all as you would like to be forgiven. And even those words are not condemning, they're inviting. Yeah, right. they're teaching too. And they're teaching and they're helping those who are angry, those who are contentious to go, oh, maybe there's a different way. Maybe there's a different moment. And um, then just verse 11 is so powerful and and so beautiful. Starting back in, in verse 9, it says, and when they which heard it, being convicted in their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even into the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And I love that, that, that it says that Jesus was left alone, meaning they didn't have anything to accuse him with. Mm -hmm. They didn't have anything to, to take him into custody with. They had to leave. And the woman is standing uh, in the midst. And Jesus, when Jesus had lifted himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, and I love this, that the first thing that he does is that he addresses her, that he speaks to her, just as he would speak to each of us. Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And I love that in the Joseph Smith translation that Joseph Smith was inspired to write, and the woman glorified God from that hour and believed on his name. Isn't that beautiful? And it's so powerful that in this moment she was saved. She was changed. That repentance, that turning fully to Jesus happened for her, and she could go forth and glorify him and believe on his name. 
And this is the invitation that each of us receives every mm -hmm. single day, right? The invitation that our prophet has been um, inviting us to do. And I just, so I do have the question, have you had the fair experience where you have felt saved by Jesus in the very moment? And I, I'll let you think about that for a minute while I read from President Nelson, where he talked about, when he talked to a, us about repentance, he said, when Jesus asks you and me to repent, he is inviting us to change our mind, our knowledge, our spirit, even the way we breathe. He is asking us to change the way we love, think, serve, spend our time. Repentance is not a vent. It is a process. So she's saved in that moment, but she has to continue this process of repenting, right? And then this beautiful phrase, when coupled with faith, repentance opens our access to the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, wow. which is exactly what happened for her and exactly what can happen for each of us. That the moment we turn to him, we can open the way for his power, the power of his atoning sacrifice, the enabling power, the cleansing power, the uplifting power, the strengthening power, the healing power to come into our lives. I love that. So. One thought that came into my mind too, that's, you know, that's a little bit different, but you did mention it, was this idea of we too sometimes become judgmental. When we hear about divorce or we hear about someone slipping in terms of adultery. And I was really impressed when I was in law school. I did take a, a, a class on gender law. And there was a really interesting book done by Deborah Rhodes on fidelity and the law. And her whole point of this book as, as a woman and as a divorce lawyer she said that this tradition, and she even brings up the woman taken in adultery, and she said this traditional standard still influences our culture today. Some vestiges of the traditional double standard still linger, and they influence both cultured and legal reactions to infidelity. Women caught having an affair suffer more guilt and more damage to their reputations than men. And I thought that was really interesting when I thought about that, how we too can be like those Pharisees and we too can be that judgmental person when it comes to someone who has, whether it's this sin or any other sin, that we look at them and point fingers and, you know, and do that and gossip maybe, or do something like that, it would be negative to their reputation rather than follow the example of the Savior, showing love and forgiveness yeah. and kindness. Wow, you in a place I never expected to think of other people that have committed adultery that I've judged harshly, which is like, ouch, because that's happened. But I, I do think showing them love is fascinating. I was thinking about that moment of conversion and how that scripture in 1 John, um, I think it's 19, but I can't remember, that says, we love him because he loved us first. Mm -hmm. And that by showing that love and compassion. What a huge difference. And it's so easy not to, at times when people are struggling or when you know, you're working with someone and then you think they've overcome an addiction and then you see them and they're totally doing it again in their back and you're just like, oh, 
all that time and it just makes you want to smack them. But instead, anyway. But we're not going to smack people oh, anymore, yeah. Christine. <laughs> we to, talked about that. It's me in trouble all the time. <laughs> but I do think showing that mercy and and sometimes this will be the outcome and other times it may just lift them a little portion of the way. And but we need to know we still love them. And we need to follow the example of the Savior right. and that forgiving. And and yeah. that's, I just love that. And well, not be a Pharisee. Right. Or not be afraid that the Lord will be angry with us instead. Right. That he'll give us compassion. Right. And I just, it changes my, my view of repentance, just as President Nelson invited us to look not at repentance as a, a punitive experience, but as, as one of love and compassion of one where his power can come into our lives and can help us. And um, I just had a really simple experience. I have a really hard time being on time. Uh, people who <laughs> have that <laughs> people who have that gift have no idea that it is a gift to be able to be on time. Um, and I, one of my greatest desires is to be to church on time so I can just be prepared for the sacrament. And one Sunday I was late again and I heard the last few notes of the hymn and the prayer but I'm sitting out in the foyer right and um and just all of the guilt all of the shame all of the why can't I do this I can always be consistently 10 minutes late why can't I just be 10 minutes early so not not a huge sin but a, a desire of my heart to do better to be better and um, the sacrament, the bread had been blessed and was being passed. And there was this loud bang. And this father with his son came out of the chapel. And they were definitely having a struggle, right? <laughs> and his head had accidentally hit the door. Oh, and oh, bug Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you know, and then they sat down on the couch across from me. And I just, I, I couldn't hear what the dad was saying. But he was so kind and he was just, gen but the boy just was, wanted to stay frustrated mm -hmm. and wanted to be back there. And right. no, I don't want to be here. Right. And, <laughs> and he was being kind and he's being gentle with him and the bread came and then there was the prayer and then we were in silence again and the boy was still struggling and the dad said to him, who is that a picture of? And the boy looked up and he said, oh, it's Jesus. And just the name changed the whole feeling there, right? Oh. And for me, there was a healing. And for him, there was a healing. And I just think that is the great power for each of us individually, is that it doesn't take a lot. We just have to turn to him and to that. say his name. And say his name. Well, we're going to, you know, I keep on bringing this back to the fact that we have to remember that these scriptures were written all together. You know, we have them in chapters. And so I love the fact that John put this story right next to the story of the blind man. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I, I kind of want us to put these seven through 10 together and look at the themes that are there, because I think sometimes when we look at them disjointed as chapters, that we don't understand what the writer's really trying to get at. Yeah. And so as we think of these beautiful concepts that you just said about the woman taken in adultery, let's look now at the blind man, because we have this initial question that happens where the, the blind man is taken. This is in chapter 9. And the, the question here is, 
uh, and I think this is really interesting, he was blind from his birth, and the disciples, and these are the disciples that asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, think we just talked about the story of the woman taking taken in adultery, and she obviously did sin, but, you know, he forgave, right? And now Jesus answered, saying, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And then we have this beautiful story about how this blind man, he goes and he gets some, some mud, and he spits in it, and he makes some clay, and he puts it over the blind man's eyes. Now, realize at this point, the blind man has not seen Jesus. Yeah. You know, he's never seen him. Yeah. And then bringing it back to what we just talked about, the Feast of the Tabernacles, he tells him to go and wash his eyes at the Pool of Siloam. So he's going to this sacred place that was used just, you know, we, we know that this was similar timing. We don't know if it was days or weeks. We're not sure. But it probably was not long. And so he goes back to the Pool of Siloam, and he washes off his eyes. And, of course, at this point, he still has not seen the Savior. So he doesn't know who did this miracle, but he does know that he was blind, and now he sees. Well, of course, what day does this happen on? Sunday. On Sunday. <laughs> well, well, there's Sunday. Sunday. Sabbath, there's right? Sabbath, Saturday. So it was on Saturday, right. on their Sabbath. And so the interesting thing here was, of course, the Pharisees, they didn't care what happened, but they do care that he made clay. Right. The fact that he had spit <laughs> and made clay, that just ticked them off. I mean, they were really mad about yeah. that, which you kind of go, I don't get it. And, and then You know, it's so interesting because I love Sister Okazaki's view of this. She said that uh, when she talked about it, she said, Jesus, Jesus just used whatever was at hand. Yeah. And and sometimes he used something tactile. For some reason, that was important for the healing for that person, and sometimes he didn't. And so there's all sorts of ways to react to the situation, and, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and and the the scribes they choose consistently to be offended Isn't consistently that to be offended no matter what i agree did, no, no matter what, what he did no matter what he did and but then we have this really interesting thing that happens after that where we have a judgment so realize we talked about the the pax romana and how even though the romans were kind of over you know very much over the government there they did allow these councils of the Jews to be the governing power for everything but killing, killing, you know, for death sentence. They couldn't do that. And so we have this interesting judgment. We, we truly have this blind man being brought with his parents into a situation where they're witnesses and realize they have power to throw him into jail. And they also have power to kick him out of the synagogue, which was the community basis for, for their whole society. And so it, it's interesting. They're, they're being witness, witnesses, but they're also having to testify. And so the council, they're coming up to the council, and his parents, and, and I just love what the parents say. They're, they're worried 
These words spank his parents because they feared the Jews. They knew what this council could do to them. And so, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. So they already knew what the judgment was going to be. They already had it. Right. And if you're put out of the synagogue, then you're considered unclean. And you can't do anything in terms of society. No one's going to buy from you. You're Yeah. The consequences are severe. Very severe. And so his parents' answer is, well, he is of age. (laughs) Ask him. Go ahead. It was funny. She said they pleaded the fifth. Uh, I know. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so then again, they called the man. So they're having witnesses coming up and testifying. And, but they know, you know, what answer they want. Then again, called they the man that was blind and said unto him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner, and they're specifically talking about Jesus Christ. And he answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. So very simple in terms of his, you know, testifying that, you know, look, because realize at this point, he still hasn't seen who did it. So he still doesn't know. Who was the one that made it so that he can buy? So clever. You just have to appreciate that he was a smarty. Yes. You know, he was a smart, smart man. Very smart. (laughs) So at this point, you know, he is kind of sent out. And, you know, but I, I love this. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And they answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? I mean, they are really upset because at this point, he is trying to teach them. And he's they going, are saying he still is born in sin. Right. They won't believe that because he was born blind, that it had to be a sin of some kind. And so because of that, the fact that he was then healed, that was also a sin because he should have been condemned. And it goes back to this whole <laughs> thing of the adultery that we were talking about was for the Pharisees, bam, you know, she was condemned. Wow. She was going to be stoned. And we have the same thing with this blind man. But Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, meaning the blind man, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Now, I love this because at this point, he still doesn't know who Jesus is, and he still doesn't know who the Son of God is. And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And then the answer of the blind man is so beautiful. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Mm -hmm. So for me, Jesus then said, for judgment, I come into this world that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And then the Pharisees, you know, which were with him, they heard these words and said, well, are we blind also? And I'm kind of like, okay, I'm sure they were kind of, I know. you are, dummies. But I do think they were kind of saying it tongue in cheek, you know, kind of like, well, come on, you know, are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, if you were blind, you should have no sin. So he's going back to that initial question, right, that the disciples and the Pharisees had. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remaineth. 
because they didn't see, they didn't understand, they didn't get it. And I'm also going to quote Elder Maxwell because we love the way he uses words. But he said, part of enduring well consists of being meek enough amid our suffering to learn from our relevant experiences. Rather than simply passing through these things, they must pass through us and do so in ways which sanctify these experiences for our good. Now, I thought about these experiences that the Pharisees and also the blind man, you know, both of them were a part of this experience. But which one had the experience where it was changing, where it was sanctifying, where it actually passed through him? And I just wanted to also bring up the question of, have you had experiences, kind of like the blind man, where maybe you didn't even know who was helping you or who was blessing your life, but that it truly changed the way you see things? Any thoughts? Interesting. One of the things that I love about this story is that Jesus was aware of where this man was and what his experiences were and came back to him to finish the teaching. Right. And when you ask that question, um, there was a really dark part of my life, really hard and challenging, and um, I felt very alone and didn't feel like I had a lot of help. And uh, years later, I was called to serve with a sister very closely in the ward who had been my visiting teacher during that time. I have very little distinct, very few distinct memories, except for the hard part, the dark part. Um, but she said to me, Roxanne, um, I was also going through a really hard time. And I knew you were having a very hard time. And I was just surviving. And I want you to know I prayed for you every day. And as she told me that, the Spirit whispered to me, and her prayers were answered, Roxanne, oh, every day. Isn't that beautiful? And I, I think that that we have an idea of how we want to know the Lord, right? He might have, the blind man might have had an idea of how he wanted to encounter the Lord, of how he wanted to know who Jesus was. Uh, but Jesus came to him in the way that that was good and that helped him to know perfectly and that also in our lives, there are those who are praying for us or who are serving us, who are helping us in ways that are really different than maybe what we would like or what we would expect. But it is a gift from God because he does want to help us. He does want to bless us. He does want to strengthen us. I agree. And Elder Anthony Perkins taught something about these sufferings. I mean, these dark times, all of us have it. When I think the blind man, it is such a beautiful story because all of us can relate to this idea of being blind and now we see, whether it is a physical blindness, which most of us don't have, but some of us, you know, will, where sometimes, I mean, we were just talking about cataract surgery and I just <laughs> thought, okay, if you've had cataract surgery, you understand what happens after the, the surgery. But I do think that as we look at this, we think more of the dark times in our life, like you were describing. And how can that suffering help us to then find the light, find, you know, have our eyes opened? And Elder Perkins said, whatever the cause of our sufferings, whatever they are, 
Your loving Heavenly Father can direct them to refine your soul. And I love that because that's exactly what happened to this blind man. That once he saw the Savior, his soul was refined. He had gone through not just becoming, you know, being able to see again, but he went through this horrible experience with the council where he was kicked out of the synagogue where it wasn't his sin, it wasn't his fault. And yet still, when the Savior came to him, he said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. But he was still kicked out. He was. <laughs> but that's my that point is that some, right, but it, sometimes we can become bitter. Right. And he could have been bitter and said, okay, I was, you know, I, I can see now, I but, also, but I also, you know, I'm kicked out <laughs> right. of the synagogue but because the of it. But it didn't matter for him. He saw and I know he saw physically, but he also saw spiritually, you know, what was happening. And he saw the Savior. He worshiped him and he rejoiced over what he saw. Well, and as we look at the Savior as our good shepherd, I think that is also something we need to see as he brings us into the fold, which is so beautiful. Well, I did um, the next part that Christ it's it's truly um, as he's sitting behind the people, he truly does this teaching about being the good shepherd, and he teaches them, and he says a couple of things about um, uh, shepherds and what they do, and so it is interesting. So the first thing he says is that verily I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but cometh up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber, but you have to come through the door to be the true shepherd. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing that has to do with the shepherd. But then he turns in the next verse and he talks about the sheep. And he says, the sheep hear my voice and the shepherd calleth them by name and leadeth them out. Mm -hmm. And so the sheep hear him, but he calls them by name. And then the third thing he goes on to say is that, um, that he will go before them and the sheep will follow him for they know his voice, and a stranger will they not follow. And so I was interested by the things that he says there. Um, number one, he says that um, they have to come through the door to be the shepherd. And then Christ says that he is both the door, the entrance, and he's the good shepherd. So there are other people that may be shepherds too, but he is also the shepherd. But when Christ proclaims himself as the shepherd, that is such a symbolic, like symbolically rich meaning. Because right away, everyone that's listening goes, what? And you think of Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd, 23, mm -hmm. I shall not want. So he's declaring himself the anointed one, oh, the Christ, the Messiah. There's also um, so many, the law of Moses and the Paschal Lamb. They all know that that is a sacrifice of the Christ who will come in and, and save them. And then Isaiah, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd and gather his young. And the one that I loved was the Ezekiel prophecy. And they would have known this. And I had not read this before, but it was, do you know about the one in Ezekiel? Mm -hmm. Oh, see, she knows. Do you know the one in Ezekiel? But um, I just did Old Testament. So that's oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's Ezekiel 34. And there's this great prophecy and it says, for thus saith the Lord, behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among the sheep that are scattered, gathered, 
so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And um, he goes on, and I just have to read this one that I love. I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. Amen. And we all know what the high mountains are, the temple. The temple. And he's preaching this in the temple, that his flock is all temple focused. Um, so it's just so beautiful. So when they hear those words, they all know because they've been in the synagogues, they know they've been taught that he is declaring himself the Christ and how beautiful. And I'm on the wrong page. I was like, man, that didn't make sense. Um, so I just thought um, that was beautiful. I love that when he says he will call them by name. And in um, Alma 538, the name they will be called is the name that we take on ourselves. Sorry, I'm just crying over this one all the time. Is um, the name of Christ. That, um, that that is the name they will be called. And the last phrase that he says that I just loved was that they will not listen to the voice of a stranger. And that, I think, is the most challenging part of being one of Christ's sheep. As you see, so even in today's people, world, oh, so much more than ever in today's more than world. ever. Definitely. And so to hear his voice and then not listen to a stranger. And a lot of us can hear his voice. But then we're also you think of what Elder Bednar taught. We will heed not yes. what the wicked may say. Too often we hear the voice. of the str- It's like, oh, but that is really interesting. interesting. Oh, but you're interesting, too. But I'm really curious. <laughs> I'd like to know. More. I know. Yeah. I just, and that's how we become wandering sheep. But I thought, um, I, I looked and Elder Robert um, C. Gay spoke, and I don't, didn't write, oh, um, 2018. And in it, he, he gave such an interesting talk because a girl came to him and asked, my boyfriend has left the church and he is so much happier. I can't understand why he's so happy and that's a since good he left question, the church. Right? It is a question because as we listen to strangers, then you think, oh, they're going to go off at the stranger and it's going to be miserable for him. But sometimes it's not. And so I was I was interested with that and um and the Savior taught, and this is what um Brother Gay said. He said, um, if your life is not built on the gospel, you may have joy for a season, mm-hmm. but it will not um but there is no enduring joy without the gospel. And, and sometimes so- one of the definitions that I love is that sometimes we've we create such pressure around the gospel and living the gospel and the commandments and all of the expectations that when others step away, there is a relief that they confuse with peace. Exactly. And I do and think it's there is, that, right. it, It's like if you're pushing against something that's really hard to move, like a piano or a refrigerator, and it's really hard. Like it is, mm-hmm. living the gospel can be very challenging, right? Sure, sure. And there are pressures that we create, but there's also the, the reality the of it does require us to live higher laws. It does require us to be obedient. And so then when you stop pushing against that fridge or that piano and you step away, there is that season of relief. And there is that season that you might confuse with, oh, I'm feeling so much more peace or so much more happiness in my life. And for some, I have seen where that transition is 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 helpful because then they begin to see what they really do value, what is really important. And then they can come back to the the truths of the gospel, not the expectations. Right. Right. 
Um, but for others, it, it takes a little bit longer. But I do love that um, that clarification that you shared, that it can be for a season, that right. they can be happier. That they can be happier. But I do think that idea that, number one, we have the responsibility to hear his voice mm-hmm. and to not listen to the voice of a stranger to truly be his sheep. Right. And then the responsibility of the shepherd to lead. But then right after he proclaimed himself as the lamb, I am the good shepherd. And everyone's like, what? And then he, um, the Pharisees said, tell us truly, are you the Christ? Just tell us. And he says quite a few things, but he ends up saying, I and the father are one. Right. And he declares himself truly. And they decide to stone him. And so they actually pull him aside, which they're not allowed to do at this point. Right. And I was just thinking about the woman taking adultery. Okay. He wasn't allowed to stone him. So if he had stoned her, he would have been taken into custody. So it was really a clever ruse with the woman taking right. adultery. But they don't care because they're so angry. Yeah. <laughs> like, at this point, I'm die. I'm just I like, just want him out of here. I just, right. So they went and he, it says, escaped from the midst of them. And then he went to the place where John the Baptist taught. I remember, it makes me cry again, <laughs> how John the Baptist has been killed. But you wonder how many people Feeling have gathered that there. Sure. And so he went to that place, that turn in the River Jordan. I just mm-hmm. imagine right there at that beautiful spot and taught and many believed. And so it was like he couldn't be there in the temple. He had to be where he was hidden. And this is just six months before... The next time he comes to the temple is the last week of his life. Right. Well, and we talk about the truth. I mean, this has been kind of our theme today. If we go to uh, John 8, 31 to 34, and this is before he's been kicked out. Right. And this is after the woman in adultery. And then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him. So these are the people that believed on him. If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be the Abraham's seed, now you know, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin." And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. Now, for me, that's kind of an interesting point here is how do we find the truth? You know, that's kind of the question. But the truth will make us free. And we're having people that are saying, well, look, what what are you talking about? Free? Free from what? Because we are Abraham's seed. We've never been a slave. So what are you talking about? And so I wanted to ask you, what did you think he was talking about in terms of the freedom? I was thinking what Roxanne was just saying about how heavy and hard sometimes it is to follow the Lord. And so, uh, you know, sometimes you feel like the freedom is not being one of the sheep following the shepherd, but just being able to dance in the corner by yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, that's not the freedom. I, it, it, it doesn't seem very free, does it? It's, it is more complicated. There's things that we need to live within and, and standards and listening to the Lord and responding. It's tricky. How is that free? And I think one of the things I'm learning 
as they grow older. And maybe it's just like with time you get this. And because I wonder why I didn't understand this earlier, but um, there are a lot of expectations or pressures that we put on ourselves that I don't think Heavenly Father or Jesus Christ have for us. And so, so it's true. really, um, I love President Nelson's invitation to learn to hear him. And so when when I feel burdened, when I feel like my day is too full, when I feel like I have too many things one to thing. do. I know that. Yeah. The one thing, just tell me the one thing you need me to do. And that truth then frees me. And then there's a lot of other things that I can also do in that day. But the one thing, then when I kneel down, I can just feel that peace of, I've learned the one thing. The other thing that I'm so grateful President Nelson has invited us to understand, they think is the like is so essential for many of the questions today. He said, he said, you have to know who you are. Yeah. You have to know that you're a child of God. You have to know that you're a son or daughter of the covenant. And you have to know that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. And isn't that what each of these people are finding out, right? The each of these are finding out those truths in different ways and being brought to that knowledge, which is then freeing them to truly be who, who they, they really are. are. And that, that brings greater peace, that brings greater direction and enables them then to continue with that daily because sometimes it's just daily and it's just mortal and it's just hard. It's just <laughs> I don't hard. know about for you guys, but no. it is just kind of mortal and daily and hard and there's not anything exciting or sure. wonderful or inspirational but because you know who you are and you know who he is and you know you are bound to him that's by the covenants truth. then that's the truth that, that then you enables free. you to be more free so the end i just wanted to end our discussion today with kind of a you know a way that the lord gave us to know the truth and this is found at the very end of our reading in John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. He says, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works mm -hmm. that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. I love that standard that oftentimes the way we can know the truth is by the works that follow by what are the fruits that happen because of that action, because of living that truth. You know, what truly does happen in our life, that's how we can know truth, whether it is truth or a lie, is by the works that follow of what we do. Well, I wanted to thank you all for this amazing discussion about truth, about the Good Shepherd, about realizing what we must do in our lives and how we must forgive ourselves and forgive others. But thank you so much. It's been a wonderful time together. It has been. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for watching Women Read Scripture. We hope to hear from you. Please write your comments below. Also, subscribe to our channel. We hope to see you again.